0: Turn, if you would, to the uh, seventh chapter of Luke. As you are aware, we are working our way through a series entitled, Questions That Jesus Asked. Uh, we started a couple of weeks ago with the story of the disciples in the uh, boat in the midst of the storm. And Jesus eventually asked them, Why are you afraid? Why do you have such little faith? And then last week we had the story of the uh, men bringing the paralytic to Jesus. Remember, there wasn't enough, uh, there wasn't any access to him in the house, so they went up on the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and dropped him down. And the first thing that Jesus told the man was not be healed. The first thing he told him was that your sins are forgiven, thus demonstrating that he is in fact God because only God can forgive Sin. So we pick up today in Luke chapter 7, you may have noticed the pattern, I did Matthew and then Mark and then Luke, yes there is a pattern here, it's subtle but there is a pattern. Reading verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, what things? Well if you back up into the chapter and into the rest of the book you see Jesus healing people. And in fact, the story right before this, Jesus raises a young man from the dead. So John is in prison. John is locked up. John is in trouble. And John's disciples are communicating to John what Jesus is doing. That's the story. Calling two of them. Calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? So John is sending his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, Are you the one that we're supposed to be waiting for, or is someone else coming? Now, at this point, there's lots of discussion about what is going on, the dynamic that's going on in this story. There's one camp that is saying, well, John is having difficult times. You know, he was kind of the prophet, as we'll see in a moment. And now Jesus has come on the scene, and all of the crowds are going to Jesus, and he's depressed, and he's in jail, and he's questioning whether it all makes sense. And before he dies, he wants to know, has it been in vain or has it been worthwhile. Have I been doing the right thing? John is in fact having a crisis of faith here where he's wondering if his life has been purposeful. But there is another way of looking at the story which I happen to like although I must say most people tend to round the first answer somewhere and that is that John knew his time was drawing to a close And John was worried about John's disciples. And it's like this. He tells his disciple, go ask Jesus who he is. So that the disciples would know that when John is removed from the story, they'll know where they're supposed to go, which is to Jesus. So either one of those is a viable answer about why these questions were being asked. So John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask them, ask him, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Jesus is sitting there doing this miraculous ministry, and the disciples come up. And it's like he turns to the disciples and he says, One moment. And he goes over here and he heals a few more people. He gives sight to a few more blind. And he does all of this stuff while the disciples are sitting there. Okay? This could have taken a day. This could have taken an hour. We don't know. The disciples have been watching this occur. So he replied to the messenger. Having done all this, he turns back to the messengers and he says, "'Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard.'" The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who had leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus could have had a theological discussion with John's disciples regarding the Messiah, regarding who he was, regarding this, that, and the other, but he didn't do that. All he did was do his miraculous things, and then he turned to the messengers and he said, you know the Old Testament. You know what the Messiah is supposed to do. You know that the Messiah is supposed to cure the sick. The Messiah is supposed to give sight to the blind. The Messiah is supposed to heal leprosy. The Messiah is supposed to teach the gospel the good news to the poor. And he kind of left it to the disciples. Yeah, he just did those things. Therefore, Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Jesus is in fact the one that John had been preparing the way for. And that was the answer to the messengers. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Verse twenty three, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Huh. Why do you think he threw that in at that point? He just gave them the visual presentation of why he is the Messiah. Well, for one thing, it's prophesied in the Old Testament that they would stumble over. It was prophesied that they would fall, they would stumble over the cornerstone which was in fact Jesus what we're going to see in just a moment is the fact that there are those who accept and there are those who reject we have this belief we have this mistaken belief that everybody's going to respond that everybody's going to respond kindly That everybody's going to respond well. And when they don't, we run away because that's not what we expected. Now, it is true that Jesus was not the Messiah they were expecting. We've discussed this in this class before. The Romans had occupied Israel. Israel. Um, the people hated the Romans, the Messiah, according to their beliefs was going to be the next King David, King David drove the people out of the land. The new Messiah is going to drive the Romans out of the land. He is going to drive them out. He is going to go sit on the throne of David. He is going to restore the kingdom and man, we are going to be top dog now. There's a flip side, though. The Messiah is going to preach the gospel to the poor. He's going to cure the leprosy. He was going to cure the diseases. He's going to give sight to the blind. And somehow they had wrapped all of this together. And you know what? Jesus wasn't doing that. He had no aspirations of driving the Romans out. He had no aspirations of setting up a political kingdom in Jerusalem and ruling the world at this point in time. So the individuals, the Jewish people, look at the picture of the Messiah and they look at Jesus and they go, "Mm, yes, or they go, "Mm, no. Some accept, some reject. And we've got to accept the fact that that's the response we're going to get today. Go ahead mm-hmm. okay <laughs> well, one day, <laughs> you were listening to a lesson. if we were going to have a whole lesson on verses uh twenty two and twenty three we would discuss the fact that Jesus cured for example, the blind. But we also know, we also know, that Jesus used the healing of the blind as a picture of the spiritual blindness of the people. We see that in the book of John, where he heals this blind man, and he spends a chapter and a half talking about the spiritual implications of healing the blind. So at one level, he is doing physical miracles. Let's not, we had some discussion about that last week, but he was doing physical miracles. But they were a picture of the spiritual blindness, the spiritual poverty, the spiritual leprosy that was engulfing the people of the time in um, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In the, is it Luke's account? It says, blessed are the poor. Now, we're assuming that it's still talking about poverty of spirit. So that's probably why you have it written there. There is a spiritual application to each of these miracles that he's doing. He's doing it. For example, the miracle that occurred right before this in the book of Luke was the healing of a dead person. Okay, that's pretty miraculous. But what is more miraculous is that he has taken the spiritually dead, us, and raised us to new life. That's the miraculous thing. Yes, Joy? Very good. Those who would stumble over him over him are the, those that were spiritually blind. One second, because we're going to get down here in a moment, and it's going to talk about the Pharisees rejecting him. And what does he say later about the Pharisees? You are blind guides leading blind people, and it's no wonder you're going the wrong way. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Well, not a whole lot. I mean, in, um, when Paul starts talking about sharing the good news, he said, we who have received the good news have a smell to us. Okay? I know what you're thinking. We have a smell. It is a spiritual aroma to some people it's an aroma of life to others. It is an aroma of death because all it does is point out their lack of faith. So they are offended by it and therefore they fall away because they are repulsed by what they see. You know, we, We have this, once again, this vision that Jesus was this wonderful guy, charismatic speaker. He walks into the room and everybody loves him. Well, that's half true. Half the people loved him. And I don't know what the percentage is. I'm making that up. But some of the people loved him. Some of the people were repulsed by him. They were offended that he was questioning their religious system that they had set up. And because of that offense, they fell away. They would have nothing to do with him. They would not accept the fact that he was the Messiah. So I think that's the connection between the two. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, is he talking about John here? Is he talking about maybe John is questioning his faith? I don't know. That's kind of one of the discussions that they have. I personally don't think John was falling away from the faith. I think John was very interested in uh, in the lives of his disciples. But that's my take on it. Yes. Uh, the new American Standard says stumble over, me. stumble, over me. The as we mentioned earlier, the cornerstone that people trip over. Blessed is the man. Okay. Verse twenty four. After John's messengers left, you got the picture. He's answered their questions. The two messengers go back to John. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And this gets us to our question for the day. What did you go out into the desert to see? John's ministry was out there. It was not in Jerusalem. It wasn't even in Galilee where um, Jesus did much of his ministry. Nice fishing community, you know, nice... There's people there. No, John was out in the Judean desert. Now, you have to understand that, you know, the Judean desert is like a day outside of Jerusalem. It's not that far away, but it's a pretty desolate place. John was out in the desert. And the miraculous thing is the people in Jerusalem and in other places heard about John... And they went out into the desert to see John. Why would they do that? Why would they go from their place of comfort out to hear this crazy man speaking in the desert? And that's the question that Jesus is asking them. What did you expect? Why did you go out there? Did you go to see a reed swayed by the wind? What is the image that he's giving us right there? Wishy-washy. You know, today I'll go this way. Today I'll go that way. Oh, you want to believe that? Well, I'll do that today if that's what suits the crowd. Oh, today I'll... We're going to see a little bit more of this in a moment. A reed is not an oak tree. A reed is a fragile thing that the slightest wind will move one way or the other. And we see that in Scripture. We see people who, if the crowd wants to do this, I'll do that. If the crowd wants to do this, I'll do that. I am just swayed back and forth. Is that what you went out to see? Would you have gone out into the desert to see that kind of person? No. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing. Is that what you went out to see? Does somebody remember what John was wearing? (laughs) Camel hair? Who knows what he drug up? I read an article yesterday about uh, Bo Brummel. How many of you know who Bob Brummel is, was? Um, he's mentioned in one of the songs in the, the Annie play that we're doing. And uh, he set the fashion for men in the early 1800s in England. He actually came up with the idea of men wearing long trousers and fitted jackets as opposed to things that just kind of draped over you. He claims he spent five hours a day getting dressed. That's what he claimed. Now he also died a pauper because of his gambling debts, but that's a whole other story. So, do you think Jesus telling the people that you went out into the desert to see a well-dressed, finely I mean you know this guy that's living in the lap of luxury? No. A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. They're not out in the desert. They're not out there separated away from society. So, you don't have a guy that's being swayed back and forth. You don't have a well dressed guy out there. Why would you go out there? Answer number three. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is a verse out of uh, Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. The idea that the Messiah is coming, but before the Messiah comes, there will be a messenger, a crier going before saying here he comes whenever a king would go on a journey there would be those that went ahead to make sure that people were ready because you wouldn't want the king coming into your town and you not being ready so what did you go into the desert to see somebody swayed by every whim of no somebody that Could show you how to live a luxurious life? No. You went to see the prophet who was preparing the way for the Messiah. Hmm. If the Messiah is going to have a prophet preparing the way for him, if John was that prophet, and if John was preparing the way for Jesus... Therefore, Jesus must be the Messiah. Do you see the connection that is being made here? What did you go out into the desert to see? You came out to prepare your hearts, to prepare the way for the Messiah. John was not the Messiah. John was the prophet that came before the Messiah. John himself recognized when people started coming to him and saying, did you know that Jesus is getting more disciples and you're getting fewer? Doesn't that really irritate you? Doesn't that really tick you off? I mean, that's the tone of the question. And John responds, no. He must increase. I must decrease. That's the way it was meant to be. Now. What does all this mean for us today? Well, once again, it is an indicator, once again, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. You see this other pattern forming in these lessons? You know, two weeks ago, he he calms the storm by a command of his voice. That's not something that normal people do. That's something that God does. Last week, we saw Jesus forgiving sins. That's not something normal people do. That's something God does. Today, we see that Jesus is the one that is following the messenger who is proclaiming the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus is continuing to reveal himself to the people. So the first thing we learn from this is, in fact... Jesus is the Messiah. But let's look at the life of John. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've been called to go live in the desert. Okay? I could be wrong. I know my kids haven't been called. Oh. (laughs) I'd better get a hat. But what have I been called to do? Have I been called to be swayed by every whim of doctrine? There's all kinds of scripture that said, no, don't do that. But isn't that what we do so often? You know, we're so interested in fitting in to a particular group of people that we just allow ourselves to be swayed this way and that way. John wasn't interested in popularity contest. He wasn't interested in which way the wind was blowing because he had been called by God to do a particular mission. Did we go to see somebody that was well-dressed, living in the lap of luxury? Why would you go see somebody that was well-dressed and living in the lap of luxury? Because you wanted to know how to be well-dressed and live in the lap of luxury. How many people come to Christianity thinking... That it's going to be their path to earthly success. In one sense, that's what the Jews wanted in a Messiah. The Jews wanted this glorious future where, once again, the king sits on the throne of David and rules the world. Now, this isn't a condemnation necessary of luxury, It's just a recognition that the pursuit of luxury can blind us to the mission that God has given us. Maybe. And at this point we could stop and have a whole long discussion about luxury, but we won't do that. What else did you go to see? A prophet. Well, as far as I know, I'm not called to be a prophet. I mean, John was a special guy. He was the prophet. More than just a normal prophet, he was the prophet. He was called to prepare the people to receive the gospel. Wait a minute. We're called to spread the gospel. We're called to share the gospel, to help prepare people's hearts to receive the gospel. Maybe John's not that weird after all. Maybe, in fact, John was doing what God told him to do. And we're interested in being swayed back and forth. We're interested in other things. So, no, we're not John. I'm not a prophet. But we share the ministry that God gave John, that God gave all all of the men and women of the Bible who live by faith, we are called to do that which God has told us to do and to do it with faithfulness and persistence and not be swayed by every whim that comes along. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28 is an odd verse. Here we go. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's a nice verse. I mean, if I were doing my performance appraisal at work and my boss said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than Kyle Scarborough, I'd be impressed. And you know what? If Jesus Christ himself said there is no one greater than, that would really be impressive. That's a good statement. This is a wonderful thing to say about John. Yet, there's a second half of this verse. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Huh. What in the world does that mean? Does this imply that John is not in the kingdom of God? No, not necessarily. What Jesus is telling us is this. All of us have a physical birth. Anybody in here not have a physical birth? Okay. All of us have had a physical birth. In this world, we rank people, you know, the greatest person, the man of the year, et cetera. Julianne saw the man of the year a couple of weeks ago. The Time Magazine man of the year met him. And um, we, we, we rank people and we say this person's greater and that person's lesser and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm actually one of those strange people. I, like, I actually collect those lists, you know, of who are the hundred greatest people in history and this. I've got all kinds of lists. That's, how, that's what we do, okay? But that's physically born people, which is all of us. God has a different standard. There are those who are physically born, that's all of us, and those that are spiritually reborn. And what he's telling us is if you take this list of those that are physically, spiritually reborn this entire list fits on top of that other list because nothing done in the human arena compares with the miraculous work of the rebirth that brings you into the kingdom of god It is a comparison not between John and other people. It's a comparison between those who are spiritually born and those who are physically born. We are all physically born. We all ought to be spiritually reborn. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than than the greatest man, woman, or child that ever lived in the eyes of God. And ultimately, that's what matters. We're not going to get to heaven and God say, Ah, here's an unbeliever who lived a great life. We'll put him in the pecking order above this believer who really didn't do much in the eyes of the world. No. No. What we're going to do is God is going to say, these are my children and they are greater than the greatest of this world. That's the comparison that Jesus is setting up in this verse. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. If we had another two hours, we would have a long discussion about the kingdom of God. We won't have that at this point. Hopefully in one of these lessons, we'll bring that up and have a longer discussion of it. Now, verse 29, a parenthetical statement. All the people, even the tax collectors, I like that, even the members of the IRS. (laughs) That just shows you how bad it is. Oh. All the people, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's ways were right because they had been baptized by John. Okay? Right here, we're going to see a division of the people. There were a group of those who had been baptized by John. Obviously, they were now following Jesus. And they liked the idea that you know, they liked what Jesus was saying here about John. They accepted it. They accepted the fact that, what does it say, God's way was right. A parenthetical statement to a parenthetical statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. A rewarder of those who do what he instructs us to do. A rewarder of those who think God's ways are right. At some point in our life, as a believer, we need to acknowledge the fact that God knows what he's doing. How many situations do we get into and we go, you know... God may be right, but he might not be, and how do I know, and let me think about this, and let me go ask my friend, and let's go ask this person and that person and the other person and try to determine whether God rises up and meets the challenge. Why can't we just accept the fact that God, God's way is right? End of story. Now, I'm not denying the fact that sometimes we have trouble understanding. Sometimes we need help explaining the path. But that's different than trying to prove or justify God's way or God's not way, (laughs) which is what so often we do. We stand in judgment of God and his way, and we're willing to follow God's way if it measures up. To our standards of right and wrong. What arrogance on our part to take the God of the universe and judge his way by our feeble understanding. That's kind of an aside. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they were not baptized by John. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. We could have a great lesson on that one little sentence. How many people, how many individuals, how many times have we rejected God's purpose for our own life? You go, wait a minute, I don't know God's purpose for my life. Well, that could be true but it's probably not we have the scripture that tells us god's purpose for our life we've probably had this discussion in here before but you know there used to be lots of and there still are there's lots of books about you know how to find god's will for your life because when people talk about finding god's will for their life what they're usually thinking about is i've got this particular question and i want it answered What job do I take? What college do I take? Who do I marry? There's these very specific questions, and I want a specific answer to a specific question. But what we see in the scripture are these guidelines about how to live your life. They're not specific questions, answers to specific questions. So we kind of ignore them. My question is, if I'm going to ignore all of this stuff about how we're supposed to live our life, why in the world would I expect God to answer my specific question? It's like, God, I'm going to ignore everything you say until I have a particular question that I want you to answer. And then God, snap to it, come answer my question. And God says, go work on that stuff over there. My personal opinion is that we know more of God's will than you and I want to do. It isn't that God's will for our lives is hidden, it's that we've chosen not to do it. Now, we still have the hard questions. We still have the hard questions about what job do I take, who do I marry, etc., etc. But we need to look at those questions in the context of a life lived within the will of God. And that's kind of odd to us at times. The Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. They had rejected John, and now they were rejecting Jesus. Now... In one sense, it's easy to understand why they rejected John. What did John do to them when they showed up? You brood of vipers, get the out of town. I mean, why are you here? You're not interested in any of this. So you kind of understand there wasn't a lot of love between the two of them. Yes, Jim. If we accept the fact that John was the messenger preparing the way for Jesus, then what we see are those who responded positively to John, those who were baptized by John, were those whose hearts were now prepared to receive the Messiah. And those who rejected John those who refused to be baptized by John were those whose hearts were hardened and they rejected the Messiah. So if it's anything it's like, you know, the canary in the mine that tells you good or bad, things are going good or things are going poorly. John is the spokesman and those who throw eggs at the spokesman are probably going to throw eggs and rocks and other big things at the Messiah that is to come. I do not know, and this may be your question, I do not know John's baptism did not save the people. It was a preparation. We see uh, the rite of baptism taking place in a lot of different contexts, but we do know that later Paul will talk about those being baptized by John Versus those being baptized by the Holy Spirit, so we know there was something more to come. But to me, it is a recognition and a preparation of the heart to receive the Messiah. Did it have anything to do with uh, one group recognizing that they had sin and one group not recognizing that they had sin? Oh yes. His comment was, "Is it regarding the fact that one group recognizes that they're sinners and one group obviously?" I mean, what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. How do you prepare yourself for the Messiah? You repent. The Pharisees, they were the top dogs. They had made this list, this way of living a religious life, and they were at the top of the list. By golly, there ain't nobody better than us and they had no repentance they had no interest in listening to this wacko out in the desert eating locusts i mean let's face it joy you had a comment an acknowledgement of god's justice the fact that i have a need to repent the fact that i've done something wrong the fact that i have fallen short of the glory of god back to last week's lesson the paralytic is brought to jesus why he was brought to jesus to be healed what did jesus do he forgave him of his sin Because Jesus knew what that individual really needed. More than that individual knew what he needed. He needed forgiveness of his sin. Let's keep going. Jesus asked another question. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? My observation? The generation that Jesus lived in? is a whole lot like the generation we live in, which is a whole lot like every generation that's ever existed. What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace. These children are in the marketplace, and they're playing a game. Okay, here's the game. They're calling out to each other, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. Huh, what does that mean? We told you the emotion, the actions you were supposed to do, and you know what? You didn't do what we wanted. We told you the part we wanted you to play, and you didn't do it. Why not? For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said he has a demon Let's face it, the guy is living out in the desert eating locusts, wearing camel hair, the guy's a wacko, he must be demon-possessed, right? Isn't that what all sensible people would say? Of course. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus liked going to parties, okay? He did his first miracle at a wedding celebration. I'm sorry for the Baptist in the room. I am a Baptist, okay? But he really did turn the water into wine. I'm sorry. It was a party. He would go to sinners' house for dinner. Repeatedly, we have stories of the Pharisees sitting over in the corner and going... Do you know whose house you're in? Do you know who just touched you? Do you know who's sitting there washing your feet? He goes, yeah. So what? So we have John who is living an aesthetic life. I mean, if you want to live a disciplined life, if you want to show that you are more... John's it. And the people rejected him. Jesus... Celebrated with the people. And guess what? They rejected him too. What is the point of this? If people are going to reject Jesus, it doesn't matter what they do, what you do. If they rejected Jesus and they're going to reject you, they're going to do it, irregardless of what you do. Back up to the reed swaying in the wind. The world wants us to respond to whatever the current political, moral, sp- whatever dimension thing that they're doing. If the world says today we're all part of the new age, then we're all part of the new age. If the world says this is morally correct, this is morally correct. If the world says, why can't, whatever it is, the world names the tune, and the world is going to get upset that we don't follow along. Unfortunately, oftentimes we just follow along. As somebody said, the church has this bad habit of not only do we follow the world, we're about four or five years behind the world, so we just look silly. We're not even keeping up. I mean, if you're going to be swayed by the wind, at least keep up with the wind, right? We are swayed back and forth. We change our message. We change our actions to fit the day. What is it that is supposed to be determining our actions? What is it that's supposed to be determining our message? The Scripture. The Scripture is what is supposed to be guiding our lives. Sometimes the world will think, oh, that's okay. And sometimes the world will think, that's stupid. They'll think, that's wicked. That's, 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 that's. And we go, okay, we're doing what God has called us to do. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know what? They meant that to Jesus as an insult, particularly the glutton and drunkard. But uh, I don't think Jesus had any problem with the friend of tax collectors and sinners part. Okay? I don't think he had any issue with that. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Ultimately, ultimately, the goodness of the tree will be determined by the goodness of the fruit. That comes out of it. We see that metaphor used throughout the New Testament. About good fruit always coming from the good bush. The good tree. The good plant. Bad fruit coming out of the bad heart. Ultimately the fruit will show you the quality of the life of the plant Of the tree. And ultimately. What did Christ say? I am the vine. And you are the branches. Ultimately. Our fruit. Will either be. The product of. The life of Christ. Living through us. And the fruit of the spirit is. Love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness and self-control. And is there another one that I always miss? Faithfulness. But right above that, in the book of Galatians, right above that fruit of the Spirit, is the list of the other fruit. And it's pretty bad stuff. Jesus, when asked the question from John's messengers, from his disciples... He didn't answer it with a theological discussion. He answered it by saying, Messengers, one second. And he did his thing. He showed them the fruit of his ministry. And he said, Messengers, there's the fruit. Go back and tell John. The world wants us to sway back and forth with every whim of doctrine and lifestyle. But ultimately... Our character is going to be shown by the fruit in our lives. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Christ is indeed the Messiah. And I pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge that in our lives every day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.